HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at comté-usa.com. That's C-O-M-T-E hyphen U-S-A dot com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kara Warren, and I'm here with my co-host, Carlos Yescas. And today on the program, we have Lee Hennessy of Moxie Ridge Farm and Creamery, a trans farmer who makes feta that people are lining up for at Union Square's Farmer's Market. And he is also collaborating with Jonathan Van Ness of the Netflix series Queer Eye to help raise awareness about queer farming and everything that comes with that, his use of mutual aid organization and the mentorship to help other marginalized farmers. Lee, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, yay. Hi, Lee. Hi, Cara. Hey, Carlos. <laughs> welcome. Um, we are here today to kind of talk about cheese making and queer farms and all of that that comes in between. Um, Lee, I'd like to start with how did you get into cheese making? Because I, from what I've read in your bio, it wasn't the first step to your, you know, to your profession, professional life. It, you are a hundred percent correct. It was kind of like the the final step um, in a very long journey. Um, and, you know, once the, the story of the farm coming into being is, is a whole thing, but once that, that all happened and, you know, I had my farm on my leased land, I had the creamery, I had everything. Um, the way that I had, uh, learned, uh, all of, all of my skills, this is a career change for me, um, was by, was by doing, was by working, um, at farms and cheesemongering and things. And I had not had the opportunity to do the like deep work working for years in a cheese room um, before the opportunity to get the the farm going um, happened. And so um, I had been a, a home cheese maker. I had been um, like deeply obsessed with cheese, like as a consumer in, in my previous life. And um, was really enamored with farmstead cheese making, which is part of what made me um, start start the farm and farmstead creamery. But once it actually came down to it, um, I was lucky enough to have a couple amazing mentors, um, and uh, Lainey at Lainey Fondelier at Lazy Lady Farm, um, just. Absolutely. I was looking for uh, young stock. It's, this is a goat dairy uh, primarily. And um, so I, I got my, my starter heard from her and um, she, we knew a couple folks in common um, and she really took me under her arm. Um, there were a couple of other folks that were incredibly helpful. Um, some of whom aren't making cheese today. Um, but yeah, I basically, with those mentors and my experience as a cheesemonger, 
Uh, I worked in a little shop called The Cheese Traveler in Albany, New York, and it is such a gem. It was run by Eric Paul at the time. And so I had, you know, in my other life had been a trained sommelier. So I was able to use those skills um, and, and learn a lot about uh, the cheeses that I was passionate about, local cheeses. So even when I, when I was able to start making cheese, I was not a great cheesemaker. I was a, you know, pretty much a beginning cheesemaker, especially on new equipment. Um, but I was a pretty solid cheesemonger at that point. Um, so I basically was, was tasting, taking tons and tons of notes and, uh, on my process. And if something worked and if I would have sold it at my imaginary cheese counter with <laughs> my favorite cheeses, um, it went out the door. And if it, if, if I wouldn't, if it didn't pass my counter test, um, then it would get fed to my pigs and chickens. Um, and I just, you know, just kept making cheese every day. I had a hard time seeing myself as a cheese maker. Um, that was, that was a challenge for me, but I was able to kind of, um, realize that the way that I would make cheese was the same way that I farm. It's cheese making is just farming on a much tinier scale. Um, so once I was able to, to see that and see myself as, you know, a farmer in the cheese room, that's really when things started to get a little bit more cohesive for me. And to be, to be a cheesemaker, you're saying like, why, why was it so hard for you to see yourself as a cheesemaker? Because is it just like, like, was it a physical thing? Was it a mental thing? Or is it just like you, you needed to sell it to me, to be, to feel like, you know, was there like you wanted, what was it that you were looking for that next, you know, oomph, you know? Mm. I, it was, it was, for me, it was very much a mental thing. Um, I, I was so, because I'd been, you know, so passionate and such a fan of cheese for a really long time. I don't really know what I was expecting. I think, you know, I'm a very practical person. Um, and you know, as farmers, we have to be, um, but I don't know. I, I think I, I was just expecting to feel differently. I wasn't expecting you know, skills to descend upon me from on high and I would all, uh, you know, <laughs> automatically be an amazing cheesemaker. But I, and, and I think because I know that that's why with all of my other skills, I went and worked somewhere, um, you know, and, and had in-person mentors and, you know, good experiences, bad experiences, whatever, but I have to work to learn. And, um, and through that working, I'm able to mentally see myself as, you know, as a goat farmer, for example. Um, and I didn't have that. And I knew that I needed to build up my skills, but I did not realize the mentality that comes from that for me. So, you know, I, again, was not insane. I wasn't like, I'm going to start making amazing cheese. I focused on fresh goat cheese, you know, to learn my milk, to, to figure out my equipment, to figure out, you know, my temperature, my humidity, everything that I was working with and to start from there. But yeah, the mental piece of it, I just didn't feel like a cheesemaker. I kind of felt like a fraud, even though I was making cheese every day. Um, and, and so I, I just needed, you know, I, I needed a reframe. I needed to figure out like what kind of cheesemaker I was um, so that I wasn't just trying to follow advice. I needed to understand the larger system. I needed to understand what my beliefs were in the cheese room, not just for the products that I make, but like how I make it, what I use, um, my approaches. And yeah, and that took, I, you know, I asked a, a bunch of people, um, you know, how they kind of like created their, their identity as a cheesemaker. And it took, you know, pretty close to a meltdown for me to, in this being like, oh, I'm such a fraud. Like I didn't, I've, I've never worked as a cheesemaker before to just step back and say like, this is, you know, I'm not, I'm not telling anybody that I've 
worked as a cheesemaker before. I'm work, I'm I'm learning by doing this. This is you know what our ancestors did, um, and so once I could get really confident by saying, okay, I'm literally for me, and I would only say this on cutting the curd. I wouldn't say this on any <laughs> other podcast. Um, but for me, cheese cheese make yeah, like cheese making. It's it's farming bacteria. That's what we're doing. I'm very confident as a farmer. I'm very confident in the choices that I make in, you know, my animal health skills and all that stuff. And I needed to bring that confidence into the cheese room. And so for me, when I look at it as farming bacteria, I'm choosing, you know, think about it in terms of farming with me. I'm choosing the right animals for the right environment. I'm making sure that they have, you know, the the food and and you know the housing and the environment that they need to thrive. I'm I'm keeping away predators, and I'm harvesting them at the right time. Um, and so when I could look at it in a way where I was working with living animals and I was caring for them, and that is how you know I mean that's how fermentation works, but that's how my cheeses were made. That really opened up not just confidence, but that clicked into, you know, the type of cheeses that um, I want to be making, the type of cheeses that I'm inspired by, um, our process, all the way down to, you know, our safety, you know, within government regulations. Once I had my, not just framework, but my philosophy on who I am as a cheesemaker, it made it guided all of these other decisions and, you know, and that really was a huge change. Unfortunately, I was able to do that within the first season. Um, and yeah, so what a great question. And if I can interject here, uh, I, you know, it's, it's kind of very interesting to, cause we have heard, you know, for the past, I don't know, maybe six years that, you know, you do Twitter, 10,000 hours of whatever, and you become an expert. And, you know, it's this sort of praxis idea that, you know, just by doing, you become something. But I think you point out to something really interesting that is like, I may have been doing it and this sort of fake it until you make it. But there is actually something that is happening in your mind, trying to come up with sort of your identity. And I I would like to, <clears throat> maybe it's a stretch, but sort of understand um, you're a trans man. And so what of your experience as a trans man was uh, sort of inform how you also navigated this sort of transition from feeling, uh, you know, that you could now call yourself a cheesemaker as well? Another really good question, Carlos. So the answer is, is a little more interesting because I... The second you said identity as a cheesemaker, I was like, yes, this is absolutely related, um, you know, to everybody, you know, our identity, our, our identities are important to all of us, but especially to, to trans people um, with everything that's going on in the world, we need to be very strong in our identities when, you know, at any minute we're faced with people telling us that like, we don't exist, they don't, you know, the, our identities don't exist. So it is directly related. However, another very cutting the curd answer for you is <laughs> I, I was not out as a trans person when I started this farm. And I was not, I, I, meaning I didn't even realize I was trans. And so during this entire process of me, you know, kind of like having this, this meltdown about, you know, who am I as a cheesemaker? Like, you know, what, like, am I a cheesemaker? Am I a fraud? Um, that feeling um, that we'll call imposter syndrome, I realize it's kind of a, a pop psychology term, but it is important, is something that I had felt a lot in my life because as, as a trans man, um, and for folks that aren't familiar, that means, you know, uh, transition to a man, um, that I had felt that I was a total fraud, you know, for in, in my previous life, I, I just thought that everybody felt like they were faking it. Like I didn't feel like, 
you know, this, this girl or lady or woman that I was, you know, supposed to be. And I I just felt like a huge fake. I just always thought that other people felt that way too. (laughs) And that I was just bad at the game. Um, And so the, in terms of like, that freed me up in a lot of my choices pre cheese making, pre farming, but also, you know, to have the, to get to a point in my life where I'm like, I'm going to leave this all and start uh, learning how to farm and learning how to make cheese because, you know, the stakes were weirdly low in a lot of stuff. I've done a lot of different things in my past. I was, you know, I worked in wine um, as a wine consultant, I worked in Hollywood as basically a junior agent. I worked in media and I say the stakes were low because like, it just all felt kind of fake. It just all felt like a game. Um, and when I came to, to farming, it started to really feel real. Um, and I include cheese making as a part of that because Moxie Ridge is a farmstead creamery. And I think all of the sudden these things felt very authentic and I was making decisions based on who I really was. Um, and so my kind of crisis as like a cheesemaker, like who am I as a cheesemaker? It was very important. I think on some level that I couldn't quite put my finger on that. Like I, I did not feel like a fake it till you make it um, in this new, very honest, very special part of my life. Um, and it was through this process um, and a big part as a cheesemaker, you know, becoming who I was as a cheesemaker um, and then subsequently putting those 10,000 hours in <laughs> that I kind of set the groundwork, I think, for being in a space a few years later um, to have the realization that I needed to have, which was like, okay, Farming for me is real. Cheese making for me is real. Um, it doesn't feel like a fake it till you make it. It doesn't feel like a game. Why do why do I still feel like a game? And to have those internal realizations. Um, yeah, and for me, cheese making ended up being a really big part of that. I I'm so happy for that answer, Lee. I I think that that's I think it tells so much about what. Um, is kind of missing for us cis people to understand about the trans experience that sometimes you know it's not just that you know you you may feel out of place or you may feel like you're you are um not true to whatever your imagination is but that there is also a moment that by doing other work by doing uh, you know in this case finding yourself as a cheesemaker you find your true identity. And I think that's really powerful to understand that, you know, for, for folks, it arrives at different stages and 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 just to how how freeing it should be for everyone that arrives at that point and they all have what you call the low stakes, I actually would say is the high stakes, but mm-hmm. you know, that have that freedom of be like, you know what, I'm not only a cheesemaker, but I'm also a trans man. And this is what my identity is. And so I I I I feel joy hearing you. <laughs> and I also think it's a is really is really a, a learning moment for for a lot of us cis people who you know don't truly understand what it is to have that moment of 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 you know realizing what is your full self. Mm-hmm. There's obviously no question in that, so I'm gonna call back to Kara, and she's gonna give us a question. <laughs> well, and uh, I guess my question is then: uh, I feel like the cheese industry, from my perspective, is kind of a queer community. Um, you know, at least a portion of it is very queer. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. curious within the farming agricultural um, segment of the world are, how's that been going? Have you been able to network with more queer farmers? Um, I saw on your Instagram, there was an article about queer, uh, queering the food system, um, which sounds really cool. Mm-hmm, what does that mm-hmm. mean exactly right now? Um, I'll answer that question first. And that like the, the, that article, which is on atmos.earth, um, 
was um kind of it was it was talking about our our current food system and the phrase that they'd use queering the food system was essentially how can we apply the experiences and wisdom um you know that we've gained the hard way as queer people um to the problems within our food system and i think that you know they they touched on a lot of stuff um i think that's a an important question not only for queer people but for any quote unquote outsider for black indigenous people of color for specifically trans people for disabled people is that like if you if you allow me to use the term outsider here you know we've we're put in positions as we move through the world where like the world wasn't really built for us it certainly wasn't really built by us um so we generally tend to develop uh philosophies maybe earlier in life um or maybe like stronger philosophies based on our own experiences of not being treated the same. And I think that allows us to take a critical look at systems that don't serve us um, earlier and with more confidence than others who are being, you know, really well served by those systems. Um, and because we have this as a foundation to work from, I think we're more creative um, and able to step back a bit farther. So in that specific article, when we're talking about the food system, you know, there's a lot of uh, talk about like, how do we fix the food system? Or if we're talking about food equity um, and food security, like what can we do within the food system to fix this? And I think that outsiders, including queer people, are more willing to say, what does a different system look like? Um, and, and to go into your first question, like, that's a lot of why, um, again, quote unquote outsiders, like system outsiders, we'll call them the folks that actually do get into farming, um, or any, you know, really kind of like traditional Americana, you know, Norman Rockwell kind of white, uh, career, um, we come to it because we're really passionate about it and despite the barriers to entry. Um, so I think what we find with, um, with queer farmers, especially the black farming community right now is that we see a lot of uh, approaches that are outside of our current food systems, or we see a lot of questioning, you know, the current food system land quote unquote access system, um, and so when you are able to connect with, uh, for me as a queer person, other queer farmers, that's really energizing to see and talk about because we're, we're people that are working within the food system, but that are willing to kind of like rethink it and take a step back. Um, generally, in terms of being a queer farmer, there's tons of us out there, but because of agriculture, you know, it's not like, you know, being a queer graphic designer in New York city, you know, like you're all kind of in five boroughs. Like we're, we're all over the place. Like by necessity, it's tough to get land, you know, it's tough to have access to land, whether you own it. I lease my land right now. I'm hoping to buy it this year. Um, but in terms of like connecting, it's something that really does have to happen digitally, like on a, on a larger scale. Um, but there's plenty of us out there, you know, there's, plenty of us in, even in my county, in Washington County, New York, which is one of the counties that borders Vermont. Um, and it's overall within like the agricultural community, I think that um, it's a, it's, it's very much like if you're doing the work um, and if you're a part of your local community um, that you know, people are making connections regardless of how th politicized things have become. Um, and so my farming community is not just queer farmers. It's just the farmers in my area as well as my queer farmers. Um, and so that's, I think, um, an important, important note is that 
when we talk about queer farmers, you know, we don't exist in a vacuum. We, we exist in our communities, but then we have an additional community on top of it. Exactly. People are people. That's, that's the deal. <laughs> um, awesome. Thank you, Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to throw it to a quick break right now to our sponsor. Hey, everyone, you're listening to Cutting the Curd. I'm your host, Kara Warren, here with Carlos Yescas, and we have Lee Hennessy on the program, Moxie Ridge Farm, and we will be right back. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conté within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk, ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conté. Conté takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Conté is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conté is the same. Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conte is unique. Learn more about Conte, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conte-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E hyphen U-S-A dot com. Welcome back, everyone, to Cutting the Curd. I'm your host, Kara Warren, here with Carlos Yescas and Lee Hennessy of Moxie Ridge Farm. We're talking about all things queer farming, agriculture, cheesemaking, goats, a lot going on. A lot, a lot, a lot going on. Um, and I guess, Lee, how do you handle... I'm going to throw a funny question here. How do you handle Union Square Farmers Market and the goat cheese that you sell there? Is it chaos? Is it easy? Is it how does it go? It's it's so much. <laughs> it's so much. I mean, pre-pandemic, I think that the traffic through there, like the foot traffic estimates on a Saturday, I'm there on Saturdays, is something like forty thousand people, and it's not you know not everybody is is stopping at the stands and and the people that do don't stop at every stand, but it's, it's a lot. Um, you know, for me, uh, my, I focus on fresh cheese and I recently, um, uh, stepped into the Saturday market. I used to be there on Fridays and that means that I, can only bring one cheese because there's, you know, a lovely community of cheesemakers already there. And that is a fresh cheese. And so the, for me, it's so much just about food safety. It's so much about food safety. Like the, the, the people are amazing. I love the chaos. I, you know, I'm alone with my goats and my amazing staff, but like, we're all working, you know, if I'm with another person up here, I'm generally, you know, working with goats or with cheese otherwise it's just it's just me and so i love mainlining into the market atmosphere and and anybody that works in a market that's listening is either going to strongly agree or strongly disagree i think um but that's the personality type that i am so that is all fine uh that chaos the traffic the everything fine with it it's the food safety thing that's like it's so intense you know, during the pandemic, when dry ice was just like, who knows, who knows if there will be dry <laughs> ice available. Um, that that was really tough. Um, the, you know, trying to, to put together systems, um, you know, for us to be able to like, check the temperature of our foods, because everybody that sells cheese knows, like, once you sell the cheese, it's out of your hands. And like, you know, you can't grow common sense for people if they don't have it already. So like, you know, someone could buy, you know, cheese from your cheese counter, like a beautiful fresh chef, for example, and just like leave it in their car 
while they finish their errands. And like, that's not going to, that's not how the cheesemaker intended you to eat it. And it also could hurt you if you forget about it. Um, And so it's kind of the same thing. I, because it's coming directly from me, it's not going through, you know, distributor wholesaler. Like I know the safety of my products when I have them. I know the shelf life of them, but I also understand food safety and bacteria And like, so I try and make sure that like it is in the perfect, most pristine, coldest (laughs) state um, before other people make their own choices with it. And that's very, very difficult when you're out at any market, but especially Union Square. Yeah, I would imagine it's a it's a tough line, but I like that you're dealing with the tough New Yorkers. Um, I applaud you for this. Um, I'm going to throw Carlos. Take it away. What's your what do you have next for Lee? So I um, want to um, go back to, um, you. I think you still have, but maybe it's not have a fundraising going on uh, mm-hmm. at the moment for uh, security equipment in your, uh, in your facility. And one of the things that I remember reading in the sort of appeal for, for funds uh, was that these uh, current situation uh, that America is living where there is so much violence against trans people has made it uh, to has made you question sort of the what it actually means to open your your space of work and your space of living for outsiders and that that's one of the reasons why you um were looking to sort of upgrade your sort of, not surveillance your security system uh, and so i i i just want to understand and and so for people to understand out there what is that you mean by by that because i think people think that violence against trans people is just on TV uh, sometimes and that is very detached from our realities. But but I got the sense from that post that you put that it, it is very much a part of your sort of everyday existence uh, in upstate New York. Yeah, I think that it's speaking to the, to the last part first, the when when we're in a, a, a point in time like right now in June, 2022, um, where, you know, me just existing is like being really politicized where children are, you know, being subjected to legislation and experiences that are completely awful just for, for being trans. Um, it's like, that's very intense for like literally anybody who just kind of wants to get by um, and just wants to exist in the world. The other kind of piece to this and Carlos, I'll I'll show this because you mentioned kind of understanding the trans experience is that, you know, we as trans people understand this. We understand how dangerous it is. We understand how, how so many people dislike us just, you know, literally for existing before sometimes we even come out before we even realize that we're trans. Like this is, this is an understanding that we have, and it's not just, um, you know, anti-trans feelings and rhetoric. It's just good old classic homophobia. I'm, um, I grew up in the nineties and it was, I was in high school when Matthew Shepard happened. Um, you know, any kind of any kind of queer representation, gay representation, anything was always kind of like really traumatic. Um, it was the time of the AIDS crisis. Um, the band played on. It was the time of uh, Boys Don't Cry, which is a movie that I absolutely detest and you know, did a lot of damage to me in terms of being able to not live in fear as an adult. I realized that it's just a big trauma porn thing about, you know, a a trans man experiencing violence. And so I bring all of this stuff up, not to say, look, look, we're valid for being afraid. I bring all of this stuff up because we're taught to be afraid. Um, And we're not, certainly not the only people in this world that are taught that. 
Um, but speaking to this experience specifically, you know, fear of violence is just a part of, of being trans and being queer. Now I'm, I'm a white guy. I was raised middle-class. Um, I'm like, I'm the, the, the least marginalized of a community that is just like, you know, that goes through it. Um, which is one of the reasons why I feel like I'm, I'm fine being visible and speaking about this stuff. Um, but when we get to, so that's a baseline. Now we get to today where it's like, you know, it's bringing brought up in Supreme court stuff at like, not even like in the court and like, you know, uh, nominations. It's like, it's, we're being legislated against all of this stuff that just kind of like makes that fear flare up and it makes us feel, you know, that we're unsafe because people have been telling us and showing us that like we're unsafe and unwanted. So at this point, going back to the original question of the security system, um, I've been really clear. We did do a GoFundMe for a security system. Um, the, the reason eventually why I decided to do it was because, um, you know, part of the mission of my farm is for me to just be visible as a trans person doing what I do. That's it. That's me moving things forward. Um, and we also, at the same time that like, I've been taking that more seriously, um, through the Dairy Business Innovation Centers, through the Northeast one, which is based in Vermont, um, they have uh, they administer uh, federal grants for specifically for either dairy producers, value added dairy, dairy processors, things like that. And uh, we wrote a grant for um, that was supposed to be innovative and like. I wasn't always a farmer, so I wrote an innovative grant. <laughs> and as a part of that grant, um, we we were like, we we would like a PR company. Um, the whole point of the grant was to, you know, to 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 build up, support regional dairy, your own work, others' work. Um, so we got a, a PR company. Um, and when we were awarded the grant, that's now a part of it. That's we agreed to do that. And I, I kept putting it off. Like I kept putting off doing like bringing them on, like starting our contract um, because I was like, well, what if it works? You know, like what if I even just end up on the local news and, you know, somebody who like quote unquote doesn't agree with my lifestyle, um, you know, tags a gross politician or tags, uh, you know, a gross influencer or, you know, trolls me with their friends you know, it's not just I could get docked, but like I have 700 feet of road frontage here. You know, my house is pretty close to the road. Um, the way that things work in New York, you know, my my plant number and address and stuff is on all of my products. Like people, I live where I work. And um, it's easy for people, you know, to find me. Now, my community has been great. I don't need a security system for my own community. But now that I'm taking a step forward and and, you know, being visible, having these resources, you know, to, to go out and talk about cheese, talk about our cheese, um, and being trans at the same time, I was like, now that fear is like becoming a little bit more real. Um, and so it doesn't mean that it's facts. It doesn't mean that for sure, you know, something awful is going to happen. Um, but for me, I was putting off really important business decisions um, or making business decisions based on that fear um, of my animals being hurt, killed, messed with, me being hurt, killed, messed with, my equipment, my product. Um, and so eventually, you know, I got to a point where I was like, I feel comfortable asking for help in this. I don't feel like I'm tokenizing my transness. I feel like it's, you know, for me, I'm feeling it's appropriate for me to say, hey, we'd like to put up a security system so we can just keep doing our thing. Um, that went really well. I had, you know, no idea the 
rodeo I was in for with pricing for things mm-hmm. in 2022. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, that's that was my original budget, not accurate. Um, but you know, we had really lovely turnout from the Moxie Ridge community, from my community, um, and you know, we got some attention. There's a beautiful Eater article that was collaborative collaboratively written by um, Jaya uh, Saxena and myself um, about it. Um, and, and, and the support's been really lovely, um, you know, and then I got to this point of like, you know, well, this is, that's a survival thing, but everything that you said in the beginning of this, Carlos, about like, you know, no visitors on the farm and stuff. I hadn't even really examined why I was like no visitors on this farm um, until I kind of got to this point. And I was like, oh, that's why I freak out every time I see, you know, a car in my driveway. Um, It's not the only reason, but I have this underlying feeling because I've been told my entire life that I'm not safe, that like, I will validate that feeling by you know, just a stranger pulling into the driveway. Um, and so for me, I was like, okay, how do I, how do I fix that? Because a lot of people asked to visit, uh, even in the, in the GoFundMe, a lot of people were hearing about me for the first time, um, and Maxie Ridge for the first time. And people were like, oh, I want to come visit. I want to bring my kids, all this stuff. You know, this type of, of farming and this type of food production and cheese production, like it it is for families. We should be open to our communities. We should be educating people. Um, I'm passionate about small scale agriculture and small scale production, and that's really how we are able to to continue is by being involved with the community and involving them and, and educating them. And like I did one event uh, for the public every year, and I would like melt down every single time. It was awful. Um, and so what I realized was that like by me feeling safe by, you know, having a fence, motion activated lights, you know, electricity in the barn so that I could have a couple cameras. All of a sudden I was like, oh yeah, that feeling is, is being taken care of. So like, now what can I do to bring people in? Um, And so, you know, there's a lot more work to be done for that in terms of like just liability going from just a working farm to a farm where, you know, children can visit and not get hurt. Um, so that's what we're hoping to focus on. So we actually still do have the GoFundMe open um, as a, like, let's see what happens um, to go from like a surviving to like a thriving type of deal. But yeah, we're, we've got high hopes and we're hoping to at least open first a couple events and stuff uh, this, this summer. Um, so I was curiously, I know feta cheese is the big seller right now. Um, are you doing any other cheeses? Is there some cave aging going on? Um, what, what, what's happening in the cheese making room? So happy you asked. (laughs) Yeah, the, um, so a part of, uh, we we're doing feta because we've been doing it for years. It took me four years to, to nail this Bulgarian feta like recipe and technique. And like, we let that support the farm. Absolutely. My customers would resort to violence if like I, we stopped doing that. <laughs> I love making it. Our cheesemaker, Sarah, is phenomenal at it. Um, but yeah, the really what I'm passionate about and what we're working on here is um, I love, I fell in love with many, many different cheeses, but I was empowered to make cheese by lit- bodily being in France for a work trip. And really understanding on a more visceral level what my relationship with food could be and what the relationship with, you know, our history as people is with cheese and, and, and preserve things in general and the interplay between agriculture and all of that. Um, so I'm very, very passionate about, uh, bloomy rinds about, um, fresh ripened cheeses, I think our milk is primarily Alpine goat milk. We've got a couple crosses, a couple sonnens, um, but it's primarily Alpines and that's by design. Um, and so there's not a lot of fat in that milk. And as cheesemakers know, 
you know, the more fat you have, the more versatile your milk is. Um, and so we really try to like listen to the milk um, to tell us like what cultures we should be working with, what types of cheeses we should be doing, what types of rinds we should be using, and you know what techniques are going to serve that that cheese um, or the cheese that we're going to make from that milk. And so um, definitely, Bloomy Rinds—they're you know un- unabashedly you know French in style. Um, the the other um, stuff that we're focusing on right now is we've got two caves. One was a cave that was here from um, a smaller farm uh, that get the like original infrastructure that was, was on the, or in the creamery. We've since been able to renovate it. It's been awesome. Um, but their aging room was, you know, it was a small like local farm sold at local farmers markets and they were having fun. Um, but one of the ways in which they had fun was to put their blue cheese in with all of their other cheeses in their aging room. <laughs> no. So yeah, which is for me, not fun. And so uh, we've got a whole, a whole environment in there um, that, you know, is a part of our terroir. And I mean, terroir, not just in, you know, the, like, what what foods are your goats eating what's your soil what's this but like terroir in terms of like what resources do you have as a person um and like who are you as a person and like are you are you a morning person do you love making this type of cheese all of those things really inform our terroir to make like completely unique cheeses uh what mistakes have you made in the past that have given you wisdom which is like every cheesemaker knows that's a huge part of cheese making <laughs> so um for us like we are we are experimenting with like okay well we can do some really interesting mosaic rind cheeses in there um and we've also found that like with that specific flora in that room we we have another a new aging cave that we built as a part of the renovation but in the in the original cave you know i've found that like with the right balance um and the right loving touch our our pengee um will thrive um and will outcompete the penicillin rogue 40. Um so for certain cheeses, like that's an option for us. So again, it's an approach to farming. These are living things, you know, it's not like kill it all and, you know, and, and see where we go from there. It's like, how does this living thing affect this living thing? Um, so for our new aging room, that's <laughs> that'll have a little bit more control. Um and does not have uh does not have the blues in it. Um, but one of the cheeses that we're very excited came from, you know, came from a lot of limitations. We had a equipment breakdown uh, in the spring here. Um, and so we were really trying to think about how can we better, you know, use our resources? How can we operate a little bit more efficiently? Kind of how can we stand outside of the system? And like, let's pretend that we didn't have access to heating you know, what kind of cheeses can we make using the temperature of the milk as it comes out of the animal, which for folks that know me and Moxie Ridge, like that, I love these kinds of problems because it makes me think about, you know, our ancestors. It makes me think about the first cheese makers, you know, what did they do with it? They have to do. Um, So out of this kind of experiment came a cheese that I'm really excited um, to release this fall, uh, which is a tome style with uh, a penicillium rind on it um, in a small format on press that just, we did it as like a one-off in an R&D. And I was like, well, we don't really have the molds for this. Like what would be easy for us to, you know, as as people to, to create and like, what can, like, let's just mess around with this one little piece. Um, and it was lovely and we've named her already. Her name is Pearl. Um, and that works for us overall because, you know, likely it's something that we're going to be able to bring to our market, but it also is a cheese, unlike our fresh cheeses and bloomies, um, that is easier to ship. We have a lot of interest in ship cheese and with fresh and bloomies, it's difficult from a safety perspective. So yeah, it's interesting to see how all of these elements, like really, if we're intentional about it can really affect, you know, the, the cheeses that we develop. And all of that goes back into terroir. You know, do we have like, 
we have a need to create a cheese that can be shipped safely. That that's that becomes a part of the terroir, you know, if we're intentional about it. Um, so yeah, we have a lot of a lot of very cool things coming. We also have, you know, uh, we have a goat goat milk cream cheese called dream cheese um, <laughs> that doesn't use any additional fat. It's all through the technique. Um, our new cheese maker uh, that we brought in, it was a big moment, big moment um, about we were in our fifth season uh, when we brought in a cheese maker and I was able to ask some cheese makers that I really respect um, throughout the queer community. Like what, what are you looking for? you know, as a cheesemaker in a new place and what would you be terrified of? And like, you know, how can I make this a good environment? Um, and, uh, so I got that wisdom and brought in a cheesemaker and, uh, her name is Sarah Putnam and she was a mechanical engineer beforehand. So this is a career switch for her, which like, I'm sure people won't be surprised that like career switches very welcome here. Um, so we spent really our first year together, just focusing on the recipes that I had developed, um, and, you know, some of the basics with her understanding as a cheesemaker and who she is as a cheesemaker. Now we're getting into the fun part of starting to develop things. And, you know, and Sarah takes very much the same approach as I do, um, in terms of understanding a full system and, and being able to to play within that system once you really understand what's going on. Um, so yeah, now we've got some, some collaboration in the cheese room um, and I'm really excited about it. Super cool, Lee. I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward to trying Pearl. Um, I want to thank you for coming on mm. the, the show today. Um, on the last day of June, we, we were able to make it happen for pride. Woo, go pride. Um, Carlos, is there any nice. last things that you'd like to mention with Lee before we, we cut out to the, to the end of the program? Uh, I just want to thank you both, Kara and Lee. Uh, you are both inspiring to me as two queer people that I highly respect. And I keep thinking how fortunate I am to, to be in this environment where you know, that part of my identity is also uh, one that I can share with you. And so I am also very happy that we managed this for, for June, not because we wanted to do a Pride show, but because we wanted to interview Lee. Uh, and we've been planning for a while. Uh, and, and just that, thank you so much, Lee, for coming and, and sharing your, your experience and your, and your story with us. Thank you both so much for, for having me. It's, it's been a total pleasure. And yeah, our, our little corner of the food system is is a really special place and and i'm thrilled to be a part of it awesome all right well hugs across the radio waves thank you everyone to listening to cutting the curd today if you want to follow moxie ridge uh farm and creamery please follow them at uh, moxie ridge farm on instagram and follow us at cutting the curd all right thanks everyone and eat more cheese this show is powered by simplecast thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.